Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unbothered with host Josh Morani. Today, I'm going to be talking about the Broncos' a loss to the Seattle Seahawks. And while I'm not going to go too hard on Hackett for his missed field goal, one of the things he did wrong in that game in managing it, I react to that. I react to Dak's injury as well. And if coming back quicker than six weeks is a smart week for this team. TJ Watts also not going to have surgery. What that means for the Steelers. I also touch on the preseason. I'm going to give you my top 10 teams in the NFL after week one. And then what Curry had to say about the possibility of a trade for KD. Let's get started with that Monday night victory in Seattle for the Seahawks. A last-minute field goal that Denver uh, attempted uh, and did not get. The attempt was a 64-yarder for Brian McManus. Uh, He's only made one 60-yarder in his career. It was last year. He made a 61-yarder. And to be honest with you, I was fine with the 64-yarder. All these people are saying only two kickers in the history of the NFL have made a 64-yard field goal or longer. One of them being Matt Prater in uh, Denver with that altitude. He made a 64, and then Justin Tucker broke that record last year against the Detroit Lions in a dome, a 67 or 66-yard field goal. While Brandon McManus tried a 64. And I was fine with him kicking 64 because he has the leg power. And as he tried the field goal Monday night, it didn't go in. It had, you know, the distance to get there. And it was so close. It was, you know, a few inches off of the left crossbar to get in. An incredible kick. Uh, but just ended up a touch to the left. So I'm not upset with the call because he's a fairly accurate kicker. And I know people are saying, oh, you know, only two people have made that kick. He's only one of eight of 60-plus yarders. Of course, 60-plus yarders are hard to make. But in that instance, in that game, I'm sending out Brandon McManus. On the fourth and five. If it was third and five, any other down, of course, you know, you just try to get the more yards because this wasn't, you know, three, two seconds left. But I agree with the call to go for it because Russell wasn't having uh, the greatest game uh, of all players. To me, Geno outplayed him in terms of efficiency. He asked Russell through for 340 yards, had a great touchdown, but he took a couple of bad sacks uh, trying to extend plays when he just needed to get rid of it. Uh, And then, you know, he just looked lost back there at times. The communication between him and his wide receivers weren't always super sharp. He had a QBR of 52. You know, Geno Smith had two touchdowns, QBR of uh, 69 in a much higher passer rating. So Russell didn't have his greatest game. Uh, So the fourth and five, 
for him, even though uh, they were relatively good, you know, on third downs, they were 8 of 15, especially that drive. You know, you're still at a 50% chance right there. And if I was Nathaniel Hackett, uh, you know, two times at the one-yard line and you don't get a touchdown or any points in the red zone, that's a disaster in of itself. So I was fine going with Brandon McManus. But that brings up another point, which was Brandon McManus's other bad decision decisions throughout the game is that this could have been completely avoidable. Uh, this decision at fourth and five to win the game, to go for it. Their red zone uh, efficiency was bad. They were 0 of 4 in red zone efficiency. You get there four times and you can't get a single touchdown. Single for field goals, you get knocked out of range, two turnovers. It was a pathetic performance in the red zone by the Denver Broncos. Uh, two times at the one yard line, a fumble. The first by Melvin Gordon. It was a read option by Russell Wilson, and I don't like that call. I like a QB sneak or a pass to Sutton because he had one-on-ones on the outside, but you do a read option, uh, and you do that play, which I don't agree with that play because you're in shotgun formation at the one, uh, but Russell also made the wrong read on that play. Uh, he handed it off to a running back. And both edge defenders on the left side of the offensive line collapsed into the running back. Russell seeing that, if he would have pulled the ball out of the running back's hand, he would have walked right in for a touchdown. So maybe that play is more on Russell Wilson than Nathaniel Hackett. But that was decision one. Decision two. Going for it again on the one-yard line. Uh, this time you run the ball in I formation. I agree with that, but you run it again, Javante Williams uh, to the weaker side of the line where we all are. Javante Williams fumbles the football in the right before he crosses the goal line. That's an issue to me. If something doesn't work the first time, I'm very hesitant to go for it a second time and then run the ball again. So both times, it did not work out for Hackett at all uh, right there. So you kick a field goal in those two instances, that's six points, and the Broncos are up 22-17. That field goal is meaningless. And in the second half, the Broncos' defense did a good job of stopping Seattle's offense. Uh, So... To me, those were two big decisions uh, right there. I thought overall that, you know, there was some, you know, issues with that, uh, the play of Russell at times. But I thought overall the Broncos uh, were a better team. Uh, They had 433 total yards to Seattle's 253, about almost 200. They ran about 15 more plays than uh, Denver. Uh, yards per play, Denver was 
to Seattle's 5.2. Again, like I said, Russell had a great day passing. Rushing, they were very balanced. They had 103 rushing yards, uh, average of 5.2 per attempt, compared to Seattle's 76 and 4.0 attempt. Seattle wasn't good in the red zone either. While Denver was 0 for 4, Seattle was 0 for 2. Another big one. Uh, Denver controlled the time of possession, but big things were the fumbles in the end zone and the penalties. It didn't look like they were very prepared for this game. Again, that falls on the head coach. 12 penalties for 106 yards. You know this is a loud environment. It's going to be extra loud with Russell returning, and there's a bunch of delay of games, false starts, all pre-snap penalties, penalties that can be avoided, and penalties that need to be cleaned up if Denver has any chance of being a legitimate legitimate playoff contender. So I thought the Broncos were better. I'm not hard-pressed on Nathaniel Hackett for the field goal because there were other things he should have done in the game. Now, with the media criticizing him to the point he kind of backtracked his statement yesterday, or he apologized, uh, saying, you know, that he made the wrong decision. If he were to have done it again, he'd redo it. Of course, that's easy to say when the media's giving you a tough time and when it didn't work out. You know, if McManus makes the 64-yarder, uh, it's like I made the right decision. We won the game. It's all that matters. And uh, now it's like if something doesn't work out, of course I would have done the other thing. There's only two options in that situation. Uh, but I was totally fine with Brandon McManus trotting out there for a 64-yarder. Uh, but another critique on Nathaniel Hackett is a time wasted leading up to that kick. Uh, McManus looked like he didn't know he was going to be going in for the game-winning field goal. Uh, Nathaniel Hackett also let, you know, bad clock management, let almost a minute tick off uh, in between plays after the two-minute warning uh, to where Denver, even if they missed the field goal or if they would have gone for it, wouldn't have got, got him a, they would have gotten him a ball back even with 20 seconds better than nothing. You know, then uh, with what they did, you know, they essentially acted like it was sealed, but they had all three three timeouts. And I'm a proponent, you know, if you don't need to use your timeouts in the first half, good for you. But in the second half, you should really use all three of your timeouts unless it's a blowout. In a close game like this, I'd like to see Nathaniel Hackett really use his timeouts there later uh, and dial up, you know, plays uh, for his team to really put him in position to win games, uh, not ones where the offense looks lost and confused. But I'll tip my hat to Seattle because they won. I was not expecting that uh, outcome. You know, thought Russell would wouldn't have a great night, but I thought somehow, some way, the Broncos would win. Uh, but a loss to a point happened. Also, what happened in that game? Jamal Adams uh, was carted off with a serious, you know, quad slash knee injury. Something's not right there. And this is just another indictment on Seattle and this team, but trade for Jamal Adams, which to me is an all-time bad trade, trading two first-round picks for a safety that was never on the level of a Cam Chancellor or Earl Thomas. 
and one that's injury prone. He's dealt with a lot of injuries throughout his career, uh, knees and shoulders uh, problems. So, again, this is another injury added to Jamal Adams, a trade that did not work out for Seattle. Another thing I didn't like this game was all the boos that Russell Wilson received. Uh, The three jerseys that they wore, the fans wore, uh, with, you know, Wilson crossed out on the back, and they rode in Trader, and uh, just the booze every time, the chance of Geno, and I get it. I get, you know, being loyal to your team, still rooting for uh, the Seattle Seahawks, but the booze I don't get. I don't get the booze at all for a player. Uh, especially, you know, they want to say he left us. He requested a trade, and he, this, that's what he wanted. He got what he deserved in that loss. Well, the Broncos, I mean, the Seahawks were exploring trading Russell Wilson beyond this season. So if in 2018, you know, Adam Schefter was, uh, you know, there on Monday Night Football talking about the what-if situation. And, you know, Seattle wanted to trade with the Buffalo or with the Cleveland Browns to trade Russell Wilson there to get the first pick. And they would have selected Josh Allen and Russell would have been on the Browns instead. So what Seattle has done to Russell is more dirty under the table type dirty stuff and that stuff I'm not on board with but I'm not on board with the fans booing either uh he is the greatest quarterback in the history of the Seattle Seahawks the greatest quarterback in the history of the Seattle Seahawks Tom received a couple boos but it was mostly cheers and thanks Peyton Manning Received some boos, but a lot of thanks, a lot of cheers. Brett Favre received a lot of boos, but later on in the Packers, uh, when the Ring of Honor and the Hall of Fame, he got cheers. And the main reason for Brett Favre is, you know, went to all these different teams, especially the Vikings that hurt them. But Seattle Seahawks fans booing Russell Wilson. I'm not on board with it. I don't get it. Uh, You know, the best quarterback in Seattle history and arguably a top five, top three player in Seattle football history. Uh, Without him, you know, you probably don't win the 2013 Super Bowl or 2014 Super Bowl and get back to the one in 2015 without Russell. So, again, I don't get it. I don't get why they're so hurt when the Seahawks try to do Russell dirty in the first place. And I think the boos were out of warrant. And as Russell Wilson said, even after the game, you know, one minute they'll love you and one minute they hate you. It's like, and I totally agree with Russell Wilson because he was beloved by this community for so long. There are so many people that rode with Russell and loved this man. And then to just change it a flip of a dime because of the 
geographic location and team change, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, I wish Russell got this one, got this win. I think this one's going to sting for him and his team for a long time. Uh, but I think, you know, moving on towards the end of the season, I think both teams are going to reflect on this. Seattle's going to be, you know, this will be one of their five wins. Denver will look back on it and say, dang, if we had this one, maybe we make it to the playoffs. Maybe, you know, we're a better uh, seed. We get a better drama playoffs. Uh, that's the type of looking back these two teams will do uh, later on in the year. But I just want to also point out how, you know, the NFL is a superior sport. And maybe this will be a little rant here. But, you know, that game, Denver and Seattle, was the most watched Monday night football game uh, in, I think, 12 or 13 years. Since 2009, this Monday night football game, it had an average viewership of around 20 million in the U.S., and I want to compare that to uh, the Emmys uh, that aired the same night, Monday night, and had a historic low viewership at around 5 million or less and a historically bad grade of a 1. Uh, and I think it can really be summed up in a nutshell. Uh, you know, I like watching my TV shows and movies, but of course, NFL trumps the Emmys, but I did catch the beginning of the Emmys right before the game came on. I forget what presenter it was, uh, you know, said that, you know, there's 8 billion people on the earth, but only, you know, 24 are going to walk out with Emmys, and she did the percentage calculation of that, you know, less than 1%, you know, Less than 1% of people on Earth can win an Emmy and, you know, just heaping of praise on these actors. And I get it. They're good at what they do. But the calculation shouldn't be compared to me, who's not an actor. In the majority of the world, it aren't an actor where there's other people and other problems going on. And to me, there's a line between athletes and celebrities in the entertainment industry. I think the ones that are, you know, athletes, uh, they're a little more in touch, in tune uh, to the general people compared to those in the entertainment industry. A lot of athletes, you know, know what it's like to, you know, come literally from nothing uh, and work their way to the top. So they have more of an appreciation from those in the entertainment industry. And I'm also just not a fan of, you know, heaping praise on people while drawing uh, other people down. You know, when NFL games don't start, the commentators don't say, you know, there's a thousand NFL players uh, in the league. Uh, But between these two teams to make this roster, only 106 are on the two teams playing today out of the 8 billion in the world. Now, if we do that calculation, only 1% of playing for the Rams or the Chargers in this game right now 
You know, if yeah, you know, if you heard that every Sunday, wouldn't really want to make you watch a football game. Now, would it? You wouldn't really be in the mood uh, to take your mind off things to watch a football game. Kind of be irked, wouldn't you? So, again, NFL viewership and NFL in general, it's greater than the Emmys and it's greater than every other sport in the world. Uh, and I'm not biased on that. There are actual facts to back that data up. Now moving on to Dak's injury. He is out six to eight weeks, but Jerry said, and the doctor said, he could return even sooner. The doctor said, it's pushing it, but he could be back in three weeks. Uh, but could he be back in four or five? Who knows? But is it smart for him to come back? Is it wise? Uh, Russell Wilson had a finger injury last year after a Aaron Donald hit. And he was out a total of four weeks, four weeks, three games. Uh, and he had his bye week as well. And he came back, I thought, early. And he didn't look good in his first uh, game back or in a second game back either. And I don't think you should rush these things. Drew Brees uh, had this injury, was out four weeks, but Teddy Bridgewater did a fantastic job, was 4-0. Uh, they even, you know, even when healthy, they sat Drew Brees, said, hey, Teddy Bridgewater will play this game, give you just that extra week healing. And Teddy Bridgewater won another game. So I think it all depends on Dak's injury. And where the Cowboys are at, because let's say three weeks is pushing it. Three weeks. They're losing to the Bengals this coming week. That's 0-2. The Giants is very tough. Monday night game in New York. The way the Giants have been playing, I could see the Giants winning that game if Saquon is healthy. Cowboys could be starting 0-3. Then they play the Commanders. They can win that one 1-3. One so then if that's the minimum, let's say Dak got that wrap uh, right off his finger, and now he's got to go to L.A. to play Aaron Donald, and this Cowboys has a bad offensive line. Does that sound fun? Uh, Dak Prescott to get hit by Aaron Donald and Leonard Floyd? I don't think so. You know, even with Dak or not, I think that's a loss right there for the Dallas Cowboys and you're staring at one and four, two and three at best. And then you have a pivotal game against uh, the Eagles Sunday night game. So do they rush him back for this, or do they let him get the extra rest, uh, extra time to recover? Now I'm all for the extra time to recover. I thought initially he'd be back by that Packers game November 13th. But if you really want to rush him back November 16th, uh, you know, if you're the Cowboys, to me, there's two games sandwiched in there. Uh, after the Rams-Eagles, that should be winnable with Cooper Rush. And that's the Lions and the Bears. Those are both at home. So, if I think if you can handle two and three, if you can go two and three uh, to start the season, you're, of course, you're going to lose to the Bengals. If you could somehow beat the Giants and beat the Commanders and lose to the Rams, I think you said Dak because let's say you lose to the Eagles and go two and four. But with Cooper, I think you can even beat the my Lions, beat
beat the Bears in your four and four. You're 500. You have a bye week. You can restart. And now Dak is healthy. We looked at the Packers the first week. I expected more from them. I think they'll be better as the season goes on. But Dad, just after a one week evaluation, both these teams look bad. I think the Cowboys could steal one from the Packers. Uh, if this offense gets in sync, you know, you have the Vikings in, you know, the second half of the Cowboys schedule, it's much easier. After the bye week, things get a lot more easier than pre-bye week. You know, after your bye, yes, you get the Packers and Vikings, but then you get your division again. So Eagles, Commanders, Giants, you throw the Texans in there, the Titans, which don't look good. Uh, the Colts, I mean, there are more winnable games on the back half of your schedule than the first half. So if I'm the Cowboys, I'm playing this smart. I'm playing the long game on this. Uh, I am fine if the first half of my season is 500 because the second half of my season, I'll expect to go 7-2, and 6-3, and three, still make the playoffs with that record. So I think that'd be the smart move uh, for the Cowboys not rushing back, force another injury or anything uncomfortable and kind of really derail the season. I think it would be smart for the Cowboys to play it safe with Dak Prescott's injury. Another injury. TJ Watt is not going to have surgery. At first, they feared it was a torn peck. He was done for the season. But second opinion says that is not the case. Only six weeks. Uh, Nimitz Trubisky says he need to find a killer instinct on offense. I only had the Steelers going 8-8-1, eight, eight, and one, uh, you know, before this injury. My expectations on the Steelers have not changed. Yes, they squeaked one out against the Bengals, which was shocking to me. But they really need their defense and, uh, more specifically, their defensive line to really win games for them. It's not going to be their offense. It's not going to be Mitch Trubisky. With Najee Hurt, they also need to get him back. But you look at their schedule as well. They have the Patriots. That's a winnable game. It gets tougher without T.J. Watt. Just everything on the schedule gets tougher for T.J. Watt. So T.J. Watt's going to miss games against the Patriots, who are 0-1. They didn't look good. The Browns, 1-0 divisional game. Jets, who will still be without Zach Wilson that game. The Bills, and yes, I know Steelers fans will say, well, the Steelers beat the Bills last year. That was opening week. That was a fluky game. That was a punt return for a touchdown. Uh, that's not happening. He's going to miss the game against Tom Brady and the Bucks. Uh, I think Tom Brady is very happy about that. And then he's going to miss a Sunday night against the Steelers. And I think Tua is very happy about that. Then they have a bye week, and then their schedule resumes. So it looks like he will be coming off after that bye week. And again, look at that. Much like the Cowboys, the schedule gets a little more roomier back there. Yes, you still play your division, Ravens, Browns, Bengals after that. But Saints, you could have Jameis Winston running as far as life. Colts don't look that impressive. Neither do the Falcons. The Panthers don't. So much more easier back then 
where you will need T.J. Watt. So really take advantage of these six weeks. If you can go at bay, if you can go out, beat the Browns, the Jets, that's at least three wins. If you could beat the Patriots, that would be huge there uh, to start off 2-0. and And then, like I said, the Browns, if you can, and the Jets. So if you can start off 4-0, and uh, which I think they can before I can very well see a four-game losing streak against the Bills, uh, Bucks, Dolphins, and Eagles, that to me is best case for the Steelers. And I wouldn't be surprised if they start off 4-0. If they beat those teams, to me, the toughest one on the list is the Patriots this week because you just never know what to expect with Bill Belichick. And Bill Belichick's really had Mike Tomlin's number for a while now. So that, to me, is going to be their most pressing game. Uh, And I think we're going to have to show a sense of urgency and like uh, Mitch Trubisky said, show kind of a different mindset uh, as they head into these games without T.J. Watt. Now moving on to another point I'd like to make, which is the preseason matters. I know the preseason is over, but week one to me proved, and a couple commentators touched on it, that preseason matters. Oh, did this one feel good week one? Because there were a lot of upsets, more upsets than I thought there would be. And to me, it, a lot of it boils down to the teams that played in the preseason, took the preseason seriously, did better than those that did not take the preseason seriously. Prove my point. Well, the Bills starters played a drive in the preseason, and they were very much in sync on that drive. Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs, Gabriel Davis, I saw that and was like, whoa, this Bills team is going to be really good there right where they left off. And the Rams starters, none of them played a snap. Sean McVay doesn't believe in the preseason, so Matthew Stafford uh, didn't play, Cooper Cup. Aaron Donald, nobody played. He just got into fights with the Bengals in a scrimmage. What happened that game? Well, Bills walloped the Rams 31-10. to So the team that played preseason took it more seriously. The Bills looked better than the Rams. Look at that. Bills played better. What else? What about Monday night's game? The Seahawks starters played a lot in the preseason because – a lot of people didn't think they were going to be that good. They had quarterback competition. They had a court competition at cornerback and other spots as well. So you had people playing intense. Whereas the Broncos, we never saw Russell Wilson in a preseason game with Jerry Judy and Cortland Sutton. We didn't see any of the Denver Broncos play. And it I could very much tell on Monday night that, hey, the Seahawks looked like they were playing together for three weeks. And the Broncos, they looked like they were their first game together. So the Seahawks, you know, took advantage of preseason, tuned some things up, and they were fit to play the Denver Broncos week one, and it showed, and they beat them. Surprising, but it happened. And this is one that also gets me. The Bucks and the Cowboys, uh, you know, for two weeks of the offseason, you know, Tom didn't play in the first pre- in two preseason games uh, 
because he was missed 11 days. 11 days. There was so much talk on Tom, the chemistry, 11 games or 11 days off. But what does Tom do? Tom comes back for the final preseason game and plays a drive. And the offense looks good. Julio Jones looked good. I'm like, dang, look at that. Everybody wants to talk about Tom Brady missing 11 days, but they don't want to talk about that preseason work. The Cowboys, the starters never saw the field. No Dak, no Zeke. So Tom, Tom only could play one preseason game because he was on vacation. And he made the most of it. And I can make a case Tom doesn't need to play a preseason game. He doesn't need it. But he went on and played it. And yes, the offense sputtered. But it looked better than the Cowboys. Another one. Andy Reid takes the preseason seriously. Uh, he's instilled that within the team. Travis Kelsey, Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes suits up and plays. Juju's played. What about the Cardinals? Did the Cardinals play? No, they didn't. Cliff Kingsbury doesn't value it. Uh, Kyler Murray's been on record saying he doesn't think preseason's that helpful. Well, guess what? It looked that helpful to me because the Chiefs looked like they were playing together for three weeks, getting Sky Moore and Juju Smith involved, these new weapons. Looked like the Chiefs were ready for week one. Cardinals didn't. Cardinals legit look like that after uh, the wild card game of last year, last year, where they were toasted by the Los Angeles Rams, that it was like the following week. But instead, this was a six-month period, and none of them did any film practice, no scrimmages, no training. And they just waltzed back out there like it was the Rams again for that game. And the Chiefs absolutely destroyed them. Now to me, there's question marks about the Cardinals. Is did they make the wrong decision with Kyler Murray extending Cliff Kingsbury, the general manager? I mean, do they not know how to draft? Because the defense still has the same issues it did week one. Uh, yes, you can say DeAndre Hopkins is missed, but the Cardinals didn't look prepared. Chiefs did. Oh, well, preseason, I guess, matters. What about this one? Steelers-Bengals. You know, I love myself some Joe Burrow, some Joe Shiesty. Love watching him play him and Jamar Chase. But none of the Bengals played a preseason snap. Steelers, on the other hand, oh, they played preseason, especially their quarterbacks, because there's a quarterback competition. Everyone was involved, Trubisky, Pickett, Rudolph, and it benefited the Steelers. Because the Steelers came out, looked like they played. And even though, to me, the Steelers don't match up well with the Bengals, they're devoid of that talent uh, because, guess what? Steelers played some preseason. Another one, the New York Giants and the Tennessee Titans. What about that? Well, the Giants played their preseason. Daniel Jones played the preseason now because Brian Dable wanted to know, who is this guy? What do I have to work with my offense? I'm a first-year coach. I need to get acclimated. Titans? Titans didn't play. Derrick Henry? Uh, none of the Titans. Ryan Tannehill, no. And guess what? To me, Ryan Tannehill needs some preseason work. 
he's not exempt. And to me, the argument should be, hey, if Tom Brady is playing in preseason, uh, no one is exempt from preseason. So there you have a lot of teams that played in the preseason, won their week one matchup. So those who take preseason seriously uh, are better prepared for week one. Those who don't start in the preseason, just view it as three extra weeks to fool around, they start behind the eight ball. They do. They start off week one with a loss, and we saw that. We saw the Rams lose. Uh, we saw Cincinnati lose. Uh, you know, Dallas lose. Uh, Denver lose. Uh, Cardinals lose. And some of these teams that lost didn't particularly look that well either. It's not like they hung in there. It's like they were bad. Rams were bad. Second half, they were shut out. Bengals looked bad. Joe Burrow, five turnovers. Cardinals looked bad. Abysmal. The Cardinals. Cowboys, three points. Lowest scoring offense in total yards so far through week one. Yes, preseason mattered, and I'm glad I had this week to really prove my point. So now that week one is done, week one is finished, who are my top ten teams in the NFL through the first week? Number ten, the Green Bay Packers. Yes, they started off with a bad loss, bad loss, but they are still the Green Bay Packers. Aaron Rodgers still looks great. To me, he didn't look like he lost a step. He was placing the ball where he needed to uh, place the ball. Uh, They just have a few offensive communication things to work out. Aaron Rodgers and his receivers. Uh, Alan Lazard will come back. Their left tackle and right tackle will come back as well. They will get better. And then the defense also doesn't have to worry about facing Justin Jefferson every week. And Aaron Rodgers doesn't have to worry about Zydaria Smith coming after him every week. So I think the Packers in the long run will be fine. This was their basically preseason game right here since they didn't take it seriously. Number eight and number nine, the Cincinnati Bengals, another team who is very talented, uh, Made a lot of acquisitions in the offseason. Lost to the Steelers in week one. But I still have them in the top ten. Not moving them out because, uh, you know, Joe Burrow took seven sacks uh, and threw four interceptions. I had a fumble that was recovered. Uh, him and Jamar Chase still look electric to me. The defense looks improved. And I think the offense and just the reps, it will come with time. I'm not going to hang up this loss on the Cincinnati Bengals. I think it'll be a loss, much like the Denver Broncos, where they look back, you know, throughout the season and week one and say, hey, maybe if we didn't lose that game, we had a shot at the one seed. We get a better draw. I think that's what happens with the Cincinnati Bengals. Number eight, the Minnesota Vikings. Yes, the Vikings got to be above the Packers because they dominated the Packers. Justin Jefferson leading the league in receiving yards so far. He looked tremendous. Uh, the defense was Iberia Smith and a, a healthy. Danielle Hunter looked good, looked rejuvenated. Uh, 
first-time play caller and coach. O'Connell looked good as well. Looked like he knew what he was doing in his first game. So Minnesota is up there. They got a trio of skilled players and Dalvin Cook, Justin Jefferson, and Adam Thielen. Uh, I think the Minnesota Vikings are going to be a problem for the Packers uh, in terms of just that division and who comes out of that division at the end of the year. Number seven, the Baltimore Ravens. Baltimore Ravens look good against the New York Jets. Yes, it's the Jets, but Lamar Jackson, to me, particularly played well, and to me, played one of the best games of his career, not looking to run the football, but rather looking to stand in the pocket, delivering an accurate ball uh, in the down the field, especially the deep ball as well, uh, which I thought he struggled with accuracy. On Sunday, that looked really sharp. The team looked really sharp. Uh, and if they continue to play like this, and Lamar doesn't have to use his legs as much, it's not the defense, you know, honing in on it because they know he's going to run if it's more just impromptu style. It will be huge for the Baltimore Ravens. Number six, the Miami Dolphins. Watch out. Tua Tagovailoa, Tyreek Hill. They look good. Jalen Waddell as well. Taron Armstead at left tackle. Mike McDaniel is an offensive coach knows how to coach, and he knows the offensive side so well. This offense in one week right now, this first week, looked better than any other week, you know, the past two or three years with Tua. Ball, uh, Miami looked really good. The defense, if Xavier Howard and Byron Jones can stay healthy, they have two shutdown corners on opposite sides of a field, which will make it a pain for opposing quarterbacks. So Miami can play like this. Do we need to score 35, 40 points every week with that defense? No, but they can win just how they did. They've got a formula for winning. It looks good with the Miami Dolphins. Number five, the Philadelphia Eagles, one of the highest scoring teams out of the first week. Their offense looked good. Jalen Hurts can run the football. He can make impromptu plays. The addition of A.J. Brown was huge. Nuclear, one-on-one coverage was not enough for A.J. Brown. The Lions should have doubled him because every time he was one-on-one, it was a catch and long yardage for A.J. Brown. He was electric. The offensive line is one of the best in the league. And then defensively, uh, with Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox, even at their age, they are still putting in the work. They look good. Philadelphia is at five. And at number four, the Kansas City Chiefs. Kansas City Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes leading the league in passing yards through the first week. He looked tremendous. Uh, just them in general look good. They scored the most, most points through the first week. Andy Reid had his team coached and ready to play. Nobody could stop Travis Kelsey. Patrick Mahomes was dissecting this Cardinals defense. Uh, and then the you know, Cardinals offense was just overwhelmed. Uh, Chris Jones was in the backfield. Frank Clark. Uh, 
causing disruption and havoc. Kansas City, if they can keep up this pace, and we'll see. That's the big question mark. It's easy to beat, you know, a wounded team, a wounded dog, and that's what uh, the Cardinals basically are at this point. But if Kansas City can go out and prove it's especially a big matchup Thursday night, that would be huge. But to me, Andy Reid, Patrick Mahomes is the best uh, coach quarterback duo at this point, throwing the best tight end in the game, and the Chiefs have a recipe for success. Number three, the Los Angeles Chargers. They were one of my top teams coming into the year, and they backed it up week one. I thought the Raiders were going to pull off a little upset, but Justin Herbert said no. This offensive line said you're not going to touch him. Justin Herbert wasn't sacked once. He was barely put to the ground at all. He gets the ball out of his hands super quick. Uh, Keenan Allen might miss some time. Uh, that could hurt them, but Mike Williams looked good as well for the Los Angeles Chargers in the defense. Joey Bosa looked great. And who's on the other side helping Joey Bosa? Khalil Mack. Khalil Mack helps out Joey Bosa immensely uh, because if it's Joey Bosa by himself, uh, it can get tough. Uh, You know, he loses his sense of urgency. But when an offensive line has to contain Khalil Mack and Joey Bosa, it opens it up for one of the guys, and it really opened it up for Joey Bosa this past weekend. He was great in the backfield disrupting plays, and we haven't even seen J.C. Jackson in the secondary yet. And so, yeah, Chargers are a good team. And we have a big Thursday night matchup tomorrow uh, between, at least to me, my number three, number four team. And what a lot of people have is two top five teams in the NFL right now. Huge game. But let's go to number two. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tampa Bay Buccaneers won. They did. And they did it in a style I or a lot of people were not expecting. I was expecting them to throw it out. I was expecting similar to the first game last year where Dak was throwing for 400 yards and so was Tom Brady. It was just touchdown after touchdown. Tampa Bay won a little bit differently. One, you know, we're not accustomed to seeing out of Tampa, and that's running the ball. They pounded it down with Leonard Fournette, and when that happens, that opens up play action. That makes you respect the run game because last year teams didn't really – respect the run game. They know Leonard Fournette's talented and can run the football. But when you're throwing it, you know, 50 times a game, 700 times a year, more than not, you're going to lean into the pass and that, you know, neutralizing Tom Brady that way. But if Tampa Bay can keep this up, keep it balanced like this, 50-50, it's going to be a problem for the defense. In Tampa Bay's defense, Looked really good to me. It was the best defensive performance of week one. All levels of the game. The front seven, the defensive line dominated. Uh, Shaq Barrett, Vita Vea, uh, Devin White, and Levante David looked faster than usual. And Carlson Davis and Antoine Winfield in the secondary. All three levels of this defense are stacked. Just stacked uh, for the uh, Tampa Bay. So if they can keep this up, well, what they did in week one, replicate that, uh, they're not going to have a lot of issues the rest of the season. And then my number one team, the Buffalo Bills. The Buffalo Bills clearly are number one. They beat 
the L.A. Rams, defending Rams, in their house where they won the Super Bowl on ring and banner night and all that, and Buffalo got it done. They were unfazed. Uh, Josh Allen came out as MVP frontrunner. Uh, Stephon Diggs towards Jalen Ramsey. Gabe Davis was involved. Von Miller looks like if he keeps whatever he was on Thursday night up for the rest of the year, he is in contention for defensive player of the year. I mean, Buffalo looks good. And again, they were down their starting cornerback, Tredavious White. But Buffalo is the team to beat. So those are my top 10 teams. Green Bay, Cincinnati, Minnesota, Baltimore, Miami, and top five, Philly, Kansas City, Chargers, Bucks, and Bills. Now moving on to the NBA. Steph Curry said the Warriors entertained the trade for Kevin Durant. Uh, I'm glad you admitted your honesty there, uh, Steph Curry. But, you know, he said he looked at, you know, you know, how good KD was, you know, the option of KD is there. You know, you have to entertain it, entertain it, entertain it, something you've got to do. But he also said, you know, you look at Wiggins and Poole and some of the other guys on the team, it's like he likes playing with them. And if, you know, some of those guys would probably have to, you know, be in a trade for KD, Wiggins, Poole, Kaminga, Wiseman, some variation of that. And I think Curry likes it. I think, you know, Curry's very, you know, uh, when he talks to the media, it's, you know, saying KD's misunderstood. He comes, you know, from a humble place when he talks to the media and those and others. Whereas when he's on the court, it's, I'm not so humble, Steph Curry. I'm front running and dancing and night night in and you know mocking you that's what I'm doing but when it comes to the media you know I know how to switch face up here so good for you uh, Steph I think it's a smart with what Steph I think you put a great and I think just for him and the Warriors I think it's smart not to pursue it uh, to me there's been Steph is in the third phase of his uh career the first phase was pre-KD where he dealt with injuries but he won a championship uh, had the greatest regular season team ever 73 and 9 lost to LeBron uh, then you had the KD phase where in uh, three years they win back-to-back championships the third one kind of implodes now it's just because of what Kawhi but KD and Clay Thompson are injured uh, and then following that you know, Steph is injured and their players are injured. Clay's rehabbing. And then Steph's in the third phase of his career now where he just won a championship uh, with, to me, no help. It was great. He deserved finals MVP. Andrew Wiggins was, yes, the second best player on the team because defensively he was great. And then offensively he could get rebounds, create his own shot because Clay escaped during the finals. Draymond uh, took a sabbatical all uh, six games. So, for Steph, he's in this third phase. I think he enjoys playing with the younger guys and not having the drama of KD. Uh, you know, it's beautiful basketball with KD. He knows that, just the passing, the movement. But I think he's fine where he's at, uh, and I respect that. And 
I just think from the rest of NBA, they think that as well, that KD is not going back to the Warriors. Then Danny Ainge talked about the Jazz players and, you know, this trading all his Jazz players away. You know, he said that they didn't believe in each other. Well, Danny Ainge hasn't been there that long. He was been there less than any of the players he traded away. I think it's a bold statement to make. And I agree with him. Uh, I don't think they didn't believe in each other. Uh, you know, I think the tension of that's not just all Jazz players. I think it's your two superstars that butted ahead, and that's Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. And you have two different philosophies there. You have Rudy Gobert, defensive player of the year, whose priority is defense, and offensively he gives you absolutely nothing. And then you have Donovan Mitchell, whose goal is offense and quickness and agility, and he doesn't doesn't give you much. So Rudy's like, hey, defensively you don't help me out. And then, of course, on the other hand, Donovan's like, well, offensively you're not there. So it's two different belief systems, two budding heads, uh, you know, and we've seen that in the playoffs. It's, oh, wow, they target Rudy uh, because even in the his, how great he is as a rim defender, he can't guard the post. He can't guard out on the perimeter. He can't do that. Uh, offensively, he's got no game, no game. And then Donovan Mitchell talked about somebody that's targeted all the time defensively uh, and can get sometimes cold. So I get it. I'd prefer, you know, just getting rid of one guy instead of both. But Danny Ainge is really starting from the ground up there in Utah and building his team. And now my final point on this podcast is about live golf because it just makes me sick live golf, kind of like Rory McIlroy. You know, it just makes him sick to his stomach. He doesn't want them playing in the Ryder Cup, anything like that, which I agree with. Good for Rory. Uh, but I saw, you know, live uh, golf yesterday that they're going to have, you know, something similar to the FedEx Cup. A FedEx Cup winner gets like $20 million, I believe, 18. I don't know the exact number. They don't advertise it as much as live. But live is saying, their top prize is $50 million in a knockout playoff format. And Liv is all about the money. You know, and if there's anybody that denies that, they're really not in touch. Uh, it's not about growing the game of golf uh, or anything like that if they try to sell you that baloney. It's just about the money. And I don't know how they have so many fans. Uh, I don't know why the average person would want to support live. Uh, I know the average household is $66,000. So how do they go to events that these players could end up making 50 million and cheer for them to make that money? I mean, all those jokers there on tour that are there for the money, the Dustin Johnson and the Cam Smiths and the you know, Sergio Garcia, Ian Poulter, you know, you're cheering for them and they're smiling for you. And they're just smiling through their teeth because they can't believe how dumb these people are that, you know, Greg Norman and the Saudi Arabia fund send out a big check, you know, to these players. And here you are supporting them. They don't even need your support. It's all guaranteed. So 
But that money ain't going away. It's a Saudi investment fund. There is no fans. There still be no problem. So I don't know how fans go out and watch that. Phil giving you the thumbs up. Yeah, he's thumbs up because of you. You're an idiot for coming and supporting him. So as someone that's just as, you know, makes average money, to me it's sickening that all this is about is money and it's not anything else. There's no growth to the game. It's just about money. These golfers don't care for you. Wake up. Liv doesn't care for you. I don't know how these people are supporting it. It, it makes me sick. Uh, just as much as it makes Rory sick. I hate hearing about Liv uh, from across my newsfeed, but I'll talk about it because I really don't like it. This has been Unbothered. Maybe Liv bothers me, I'll say that. Uh, I could change the title to my podcast is Unbothered, but Liv. Liv really bothers me. Live really bothers me. This has been Unbothered. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, everybody.